Our dear Heavenly Father, your grace is so evident in our lives, Father. So much of what we take for granted is just proof that you've continued to bless us. You say in your word that you bring the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous, which is a way of reminding us, Father, that even the everyday patterns of life that we believe are just there because it's always been that way. That they themselves are testimony to your faithfulness and to your willingness to bestow gifts upon people who do not deserve them. And Father, as Paul called himself chief of sinners, we know that feeling, Father. We know we are all men and women who have so much to be repentant for, so many things in our life, Father, that remind us that we live in a body of sin. And it's without regard to that sin, Father, that you took upon yourself the penalty so that you could bestow upon us the grace of your mercy. We know this, Father, from your word. We know it every day in our, in our lives as we reflect on who we are and what we do that does not please you. Our minds are brought back to the reality of who we become in Christ by faith and that that has absolved us from the sin and it has cleared our debt to you. And that is why we can live in joy and peace and in hope of our resurrection, knowing these things have been made possible through Christ. And thank you, Father, for that joy so that the enemy cannot defeat us as we consider what, what we've done wrong on a given day or week. That we cannot, uh, we do not have to dwell on those things, Father, and be discouraged by them. We can look past them as you do. And yet, Father, as we know that and as we rest in that, we are not satisfied to live that way, Father. We do not want to be the one who is prodigal, who is lost. We want to be the one, Father, who has been stirred and moved by your love to, to do better. And, Father, we study the word because we know in it we will find the truth that will free us from cycles of sin like the ones that were so dominant in this time of judges father when the people of god just could not escape from the pattern of sin and we know father it was not for lack of ability or for a lack of opportunity as you gave it to them but father it was because their their hearts were hard father keep us from being coming men and women who have hard hearts and who take for granted that your grace has no limit Give us a rather, Father, a desire to seek you in your word and to reflect you in this world and to please you by what we choose. And uh, I pray, Father, you'd have that purpose in mind this morning as we read your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's a cute story of a young boy who had planned to meet a friend at the movies. They were going to go to a matinee, Sunday morning matinee, you know, when the price is a little cheaper. And friend gets there on time, but this young boy who was supposed to meet him there gets there quite late. And as they finally meet up, the friend says, why are you so late? We're missing the start of the movie. And, and the young man says, well, it occurred to me this morning as I was getting ready to come that God was prompting me to go to church instead of coming to the movies. And I had to sit there and think about that for a while. Finally, I decided I would just get a clear sign from God. I'd slip a coin and heads I go to the movies, tails I would go to church. And his friend said, well, okay, but why is that making you so late? And he said, well, I had to flip the coin 35 times. <laughs> to me, that's a really cute story that proves a much more important biblical point, that it's not for a lack of hearing that we don't do what God wants us to do. It's for a lack of listening. And what we will typically do in circumstances, we will feel or think or remember something that God has put on our hearts about what we can do and should do, and then we will think twice. It's that thinking twice that gets us into trouble. I don't know what caused Israel to be so 
incalcitrant, why they were so unwilling to move past their pattern of sin in the time of Judges. Ultimately, as we get through the books of Judges and then later Samuel's books and then the Kings, you get the clear picture that it was because of their sin that God allowed this to continue such that it could prove a larger theological point about the importance of Christ ruling over the flesh. But in the meantime, it doesn't explain the moment-to-moment decisions they were making. And as we come into chapter 6, we're going to take the wheel of Judges, as I call it, this cycle that typifies the experience of Israel. We're going to turn this wheel now again for its fourth turn in this book, the fourth major apostasy in the book of Judges. And with each turn, as I've said, we have another opportunity to examine the hows and whys of what happened in this culture looking at both what they say and do and also what God does in response. The turn of the wheel in this case runs from chapter 6 all the way to the beginning of chapter 10. Now you'll notice immediately that as we're moving into a new turn, we're getting more detail with each turn. Early turns took a few verses. Now we're talking a few chapters in order to understand the set of circumstances. And in this case also, this turn encompasses four judges, not simply one. It takes four judges before they finally pull their way through this cycle all the way again. But there is one judge in particular, a man named Gideon, who forms the central focus of this turn, of this cycle. And as I mentioned already, Israel's cycle of sin and redemption will continue to deteriorate with each turn as well. So it's not merely that we do the same things over again. We do them more poorly than we did even in earlier cycles. So you're going to note here this deterioration very clearly in this story, in this episode. Because when Israel calls upon the Lord during their time of misery, he is first, he's not going to welcome their request as much as he has in the past. Secondly, the judge he raises up here is a man with some very notable weaknesses more so than we've seen before. And the nation, as they respond to God's mercy, will not recover nearly as far as they have in the past. In fact, before it's over, they're killing each other for the first time in the history of Israel. They're at war with one another. And that, of course, only gets things going in a worse direction. It gets even more rebellious. So let's start in chapter 6. Let's see how this plays out. Today we're going to get into a bit of an introduction of how this goes. And then in weeks to come, we'll get to know these judges much better. Let's start in verse 1. Scripture reads, then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian. The sons of Israel made for themselves the dens, which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable and they came in the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. 
So our story this morning begins with that anticipated phrase that Samuel has been using all along to mark the beginning of each of these new cycles of sin, where Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the key marker in this book. Whenever you see that, you know you're at the top of one of these cycles again. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So remember this. This is always that catchphrase that means that they have gone back into idol worship specifically among whatever other sins they were doing. So they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And from their point of view, idol worship is perfectly fine. But when God looks upon that in his judgment, it is evil. And of course, he sees it truthfully. So as a result, the Lord gives Israel, in this case, seven years of misery, it says, under the Midianites. Now, the Midianites were a nomadic people, which means these are a group of people who don't have cities and and crops of their own. They move around. You may remember that the Midianites descend from Abraham and his third wife, Keturah. We often forget that Abraham had a third wife, don't we? We always remember Sarah and most of us remember Hagar, but we forget there was a third gal toward the end of his life. And here, friends, is another example in passing of how the Bible reflects on the error of taking multiple wives. In every case in Scripture where a man is shown to take multiple wives, The Bible always makes clear within that context that such a choice was wrong and contrary to God's purposes and will, and it brings negative consequences. In Abraham's case, for example, when he took the second wife, Hagar, you can clearly see when you look at the text of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in New Testament commentary, that doing so was a huge mistake. Scripture says that Hagar was a decision of Abraham and Sarah made in the flesh, not one prompted by the Spirit. And that as a result, Abraham's design here had severe negative consequences for him, for Hagar, for his son, and then ultimately for Israel down to this very day. For it produced a race of people that have warred with Israel and continue to do so. Those are the negative consequences of Abraham taking a second wife. And as such, they reflect the problem of it. I've heard people say from time to time that, well, the Bible never comes out and says that you shouldn't have multiple wives. In fact, you see all these men of the Old Testament having them. Friends, you have to be blind to not see in the text of Scripture the outcome of that error, of literally of that adulterous relationship. When you look at how it impacted every man who is shown to have done so, never is it shown in a positive light, always is it shown in a negative light? In this case, what is the negative consequence of Keturah entering into the family of Abraham? Well, among other things, the Midianites. And the Midianites become enemies of Israel as a result. And God uses them ultimately for good. Good in the sense of what ultimate outcome it can be useful for. But the Midianites are proof again of that mistake. We said they're nomads. They lived in the plains which are east of the Jordan River, present-day Jordan for the most part, on the eastern bank. At that time, it was a place called Moab. And as nomads, their livelihood didn't depend on them being settled, of course. They, They made their livelihood a different way, principally as raiders. They would, at harvest time, descend on their neighbors in whatever area, in this case in Canaan, Israel, And they would steal the crops and the possessions of these people and then run off back to their land with all of that wealth. And they would do this time and time again. In effect, what the Midianites were doing was forcing other people to raise their crops and to raise their herds for them. And they just sat back, waited for that to come in, and then they'd run in, take them and go back home. And they would terrorize the people doing that. They were able to do this, according to verse 5, principally because they had camels. 
The camel was like the Humvee of its day. It was huge. It was fast. It could carry a lot of cargo. And these people, the Midianites, were some of the earliest peoples to domesticate camels. Camel domestication began in Arabia, moved north into this part of the world. And they had a tremendous advantage for that. Because they could ride in on what the scripture says was innumerable camels, they could burst onto the scene, take everything that the camel could carry, and ride back out before anybody could do anything about it. And in verses 2 and 3, you see how the Israelites respond to the tyranny of what the Midianites were doing. It says here that the Israelites took to hiding their crops and themselves in caves, in dens and caves of mountains. What they're doing is they're concealing themselves from the raiders who would otherwise have had plenty of chance to come in and take everything. And if you've been to Israel, you'll know the hillsides of Judea are just littered with little pockets of caves and dens, etc. And in fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden in just such a place down near the Dead Sea. That's why they survived. But this is not a solution. This is a Band-Aid on a bigger problem. Despite the fact that the Jews have gone into hiding in this way and put their things into little caves, they can't hide enough. You can only put so much in a cave. And as a result, the Midianites continue this raiding. They, they come in, they take whatever they want, including all the livestock. And as a result, they leave the people of Israel virtually destitute to say nothing of their mental state. Right. They're terrorized by these outsiders. And then we're told this pattern continues for seven years as God ordained it. But for seven years, they're enduring this punishment for their idolatry. Remember something for a minute. The punishment that they're experiencing is a direct result of them, of Israel, disobeying a covenant, the old covenant in this case, the covenant through Moses, that they willingly agree to in advance. And as a result of their disobedience, they now see these consequences. In that covenant that they agreed to, given through Moses, there was a point in the desert, in Deuteronomy specifically, when Moses, in a moment of prophecy, explains to Israel exactly what would happen because they would disobey this covenant in a future day. Listen to something of what he read. I'm going to read a large passage here, but it's out of Deuteronomy 28. And this is Moses, the Lord actually speaking through Moses to Israel about their future under this covenant. Verse 15 He says, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And listen to this list. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of your evil deeds because you've forsaken me. And then jump to verse 25. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. You will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food to all birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and the tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. And you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in the darkness. And you will not prosper in your ways, but you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with none to save you. 
and you shall betroth a wife, but another man will violate her and you shall build a house, but you will not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not have use of its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you and you will not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies and you will have none to save you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually. But there will be nothing you can do. A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. You shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see. All right, so now as you heard that, I'm sure you noticed a number of things in there that remind you of exactly what we're reading here in Judges chapter 6. I am not saying Judges 6 is the fulfillment of all of Deuteronomy 28. There are some things in there that aren't fulfilled here that come elsewhere. But at least for now, you can see some of the similarities, right? You notice God promised that they'd lose their hard-earned crops and their livestock. Well, check that one off to the Midianites. That they'd be defeated by their enemies while they're still in the land. Okay, check that one off. They would flee in every direction as an example of terror before the world's eyes. Well, we got that one going on now, too. And then in Deuteronomy 28:29, the Lord says, and I love this one because this is so specific. You know that this is clearly evidence of prophecy. He says the people will grope at noon like a blind man in darkness. Well, it's brightest at noon. So why would they be groping around in the dark? Well, because they're in a cave. Because they're hiding themselves in the dark of a cave in the middle of the day because they're so scared of these people that are running into their land and taking all their goods. The Lord predicted exactly what Israel would experience because of their disobedience under this covenant. Friends, if nothing else, we take away that our Lord is a serious God who holds us accountable in serious ways. Now, of course, by faith in Christ, we will not be held to the consequences of our sin in eternal terms. But it doesn't mean that there aren't temporal consequences for disobedience. That's the part you can't forget. And it's amazing to me, as I see the story of Judges 6 opening here, it's amazing to me how much misery Israel was willing to tolerate as a culture before waking up to the reality of their circumstances. They were suffering in all of these ways because, why? Because they were living in disobedience to the clear instructions of God. Correct? And remember, those instructions were the commandments of the law. Remember, those instructions that they were rejecting, they were given by God for good purposes, for their good. We're not talking about them rejecting things that were, that were onerous, that were terrible things, and that's why they were so ready to drop them. We're talking about commandments that had the power to promote the health and well-being of the nation of Israel, that included things like bringing them peace and joy and prosperity under God's care and provision. I mean, these are not commandments designed to make their life harsh and unpleasant. These were commandments that if they followed them, good things followed for Israel, according to God's promises. I just read you all the curses that were in Deuteronomy 28. But what you didn't hear, what I didn't read was what comes before that. What comes before that is a list of blessing that God said would be Israel's if they would just obey his word. So God is not vindictive. God simply holds us accountable, and there's a difference. But here you have a group of people, a culture of people, disobeying the covenant, choosing to live in their flesh, seeking pleasure for themselves in an unholy and destructive way, contrary to the ways of the Lord. And you have the Lord responding as he promised, just as he told them he would, putting them under this pressure. And I look at what's going on, and I have to say to myself, what were they thinking Because I think at first, when the first of the Midianite raids began at the start of those seven years, those people must have rationalized that calamity as merely bad luck 
or a momentary tragedy, right? We do this, right? The fire, the earthquake, the plane crash, momentary tragedy. But then as things get worse, what are they thinking? Well, they must have decided we got to fight back. Your first thought after that is, well, we just can't take this lying down. But then they realize they can't beat the Midianites. Now, in practical terms, it would have been because of the camels and the numbers and so on. But in supernatural terms, we know that they were never going to be able to defeat them. God had a purpose in this and Israel was not going to triumph. Not in this time of punishment. So what are they saying to themselves after this? Well, then they say to themselves, we've got to come up with a solution. Ah, the cave idea. Brilliant. Let's do the cave thing. Okay, but what did the cave thing actually accomplish? It made them de facto prisoners, self-imposed exile in their own land, living in darkness in holes. Oh, that was a great solution. And how long do they live with that? They live in darkness, confined to caves, scared, miserable, destitute. And I have to think the last stage of this process of thought is you start blaming God at this point. You start saying, why are you doing this? And you would think, I would think, that as their lives deteriorated down this little path and they ended up in this horrific situation, that they might have stopped to ask themselves the simple question, why is God permitting this? Wouldn't that be the logical expectation from a group of people who know the living God? Why is God allowing this? Because they should have known that nothing ever happens to God's people, not then or now for that matter, that isn't according to God's permissive will. He has permitted everything we experience in life, according to Scripture, and it all comes to serve some good purpose down the road, but we may not see it in the moment. But he's in control of everything. And so if you're ever going to find the good purpose in something you're facing, it requires that you and I, as people of God, stop, look at our circumstances, and ask ourselves questions like, what does my set of circumstances say about my state of obedience? Or what does it have to say about God's purpose? Or what does it say about my life in general? What am I to learn from what's happening? Of course, there's a difference between trials and discipline. Not every bad thing that happens to us necessarily means we've done something wrong to deserve it. That's a kind of mentality that starts to say, I'm a bad person. This happened to me. It must be I'm bad. Or we become fatalistic. That's not the right impression you should have because not every bad experience is punishment for living in disobedience. Sometimes God brings us trials. Sometimes he brings us persecution. And those events can look a lot like discipline. But you know what? They will always feel very different. When you're experiencing the discipline of the Lord, you will feel it. You will feel conviction. You will feel sorrow. And hopefully you're going to feel repentance, which will lead to God's forgiveness. But when you're being tested by trial, when God brings persecution onto the church, you're going to feel different things according to Scripture. You're going to feel peace, a peace that passes understanding. You might even understand the experience of Paul in Philippians when he talks of having joy at the prospect of receiving persecution for the sake of the gospel. You see, it may look a lot like what it does when you're getting disciplined, but it won't feel the same because of what he's doing in your heart through it. So here's a good rule of thumb in my experience. God brings trial upon his children who are living in obedience. He brings discipline upon his children when they are entrapped in sin. And it appears, however, that seven years go by in the case of Israel before the people of Israel have this thought to ask themselves a soul searching question of what do you think this is all about? Solomon, do you think we're in this? I, I don't know, Morty, do you think we should be going through this? No, maybe not. All right, well, maybe this is God. Gee, why would he do this to us? Well, you know, we haven't been doing the right thing lately. There is that. Maybe that's it. For seven long years, they just accept their circumstances. Life has gone from blissful to atrocious. 
from blessed to cursed. And they don't stop to ask how they get there. And when you're in the middle of the groping process, in the middle of the darkness, someone might have thought to say, you know, I think we've read this somewhere. Weren't we warned that this was going to happen? And more than that, they knew the Lord's power. They knew he had brought them into the land. They knew he was protecting them in past circumstances. Again, why not ask what's up with this now? Why isn't he doing it for us today? Their blindness, their darkness in those caves. What a beautiful spiritual picture. What a beautiful spiritual metaphor for what was going on in their hearts. Darkened hearts, spiritually blind, not able to see what they should see. And because they can't see that for themselves, look at verses 8 through 10. The Lord responds when he finally speaks to them through a prophet, an unnamed prophet. We don't know who this was. He says exactly what they should have been saying themselves. He starts by saying, hey, you remember me? I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you into the land. I'm the God who defeated your enemies. And then he says, and since I'm this all-powerful God, remember I told you you have no reason to fear the Amorites? And of course, the Amorites in this case just mean all the Canaanite peoples, including the Midianites. You know, don't you remember me saying you wouldn't have to fear them because I'm so powerful, because I'm on your side? Okay, so what's his point? His point is, clearly, if I can defeat Egypt, which was a much greater power than Midian was, if I can defeat Egypt, if I can protect you from anyone, including the Canaanites, that means, logically, your enemies can never do anything against you, well, except for what I allow. Except for what I allow. Which is to simply say, you're in the situation you're in because I'm allowing it. And, of course, that begs the question. If the Midianites are winning because the Lord is letting them win, then he must have some reason for why he's willing to let them win. And that brings you back to the key issue, right? The Lord answers them by saying, how come you're not thinking like this? The Israelites were supposed to be asking those questions. We have to learn to think like this too, right? That's going to be an essential discipline of the faithful if we are to gain any benefit whatsoever over the discipline process. The writer of Hebrews makes very clear in chapter 12 that there is no such thing as the believer who lives without the discipline of the Lord. If it were possible, the writer says in Hebrews 12, it would mean we were illegitimate children, for no good father withholds discipline from his children for their own sake. Now, our covenant with the Lord is different. We don't have the old covenant binding us to the Lord. We have the new. Difference being that the old covenant guaranteed certain calamities for disobedience, whereas that's not a part of the new. There's no guarantee. There's no list. I can't take you to somewhere in the New Testament and show you the laundry list of promised calamities that are yours and mine every time we mess up, thankfully. But that doesn't mean there aren't any, friends. That doesn't mean he isn't creatively creating new ones for us on the fly. It doesn't mean he doesn't go into our world and disturb it just enough to make a point. On the contrary, as we said, the scripture says it's an expectation. The writer in chapter 12 of Hebrews says, starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he jumps down, he says in verse 4, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He points out that sin is an encumbrance. When we studied this as we looked at the book of Hebrews months ago, when we looked at this chapter, we said the encumbrance was like a ball and chain. The idea of it was it's something dragging behind us. It doesn't let us move at the same speed that we could otherwise. It holds us back. Specifically, it holds us back from obedience. That's clear. But it also holds us back from joyfulness, from the peacefulness that comes when you live in the spirit and the word. 
And it also holds you back from accomplishing things. Whatever it is in God's economy that he's set before us to go do, from which we can receive eternal reward, that work is going to be hampered, impeded, if we're too busy dealing with sin in our life. Not that we won't always have some, of course, but if it's a ball and chain we won't cut free, we're, we're, we're going to be like this. That's not a way in which we're going to make much progress. The writer says in verse 11 of Hebrews 12, he says, All discipline for the moment may not seem to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, well, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So he's going to train us with discipline. It's not going to be fun, but it's going to be necessary. The Israelites weren't enjoying the work of the Lord and discipline clearly as they hid in the caves, but they weren't getting any benefit out of it either because they weren't asking the central question of why does God want this in my life right now? If we live in sin sooner or later, what God does is he tears down that happy facade that we've constructed around ourselves to expose the true us, if to no one else, at least to ourselves. And then he begins from that point forward to build us back up. But that's predicated on, that's assuming we ask the right questions of ourselves and of him for why we're in the circumstances we're in. I run into a lot of Christians who I think are in the midst of one of these crumbling down episodes where God is about to build them back up. And I know the ones who are on the right path versus the ones who are still in trouble. The difference is how they're perceiving their circumstances. For the Christian who is on the way back, their perception is one of, I needed this, and I know how God's putting it to work. For the Christian that's still on the way down, it's a woe is me, self-pity, discouraged mindset that just can't see past their moment. And as a result, God just lets it steep, I think. Because eventually it's going to have its effect. Because when you stop confronting your sin, guess what? The Lord doesn't give up. He doesn't stop. He just keeps responding with discipline. So as the time to restore Israel has come, you see the Lord now responding a little differently than he has in the past with Israel because he's not pleased to be in this cycle the fourth time. That's my assumption. And so even as he acts to free them, he does it a bit reluctantly. And when he does respond, he goes after a man who would be very unlikely. Now, that's not unusual for God's pattern. He often picks the unlikely hero, as we've seen already, the weak one. But Gideon takes it even a step further. And what follows in chapter six is the commissioning of this judge Gideon, or as I've said before, a captain of the army. Let's look where that begins now. Verse 11. So after the Lord has responded to Israel's call, sent them a prophet to explain why they're in their circumstances, he moves forward in mercy. Verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abazrite, and his son Gibeon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. You see how Gideon is reflecting exactly the attitude we just described? Here's a man who, in many ways, personifies the state of Jewish society in his day, in much the same way, by the way, that Barak and Deborah were sort of poster children for the way men and women were a few years earlier in their day. In Gideon's case, the weakness of men seems to continue being evident in society, and he's a good example of that. As we're going to see going forward, he's a man of self-doubt. I mean, if there's one thing we all know about Gideon, right, it's the guy who could never be totally sure that he knew what God wanted. 
And we'll study that next week some more. But he has self-doubts. He isn't a guy of great leadership skill. We're going to see that. He wants to serve God. But what you're also going to see is he's still drawn in by the culture. And he's in this internal war between serving God and living in the culture. And even though he ultimately wins battles because God does that through him, nonetheless, you're going to find out before the story is over, he commits idolatry and engages in sin, marrying many wives, and doesn't end well. Frankly, there are just no pure heroes left in the book of Judges at this point. We're dealing here with a culture on the decline, with the people who are corrupt, and even as God works to do what he wills, he's working with a real ragtag group of people. And it just continues. As he steers Israel from one apostasy to another, we get to watch how he has to do that. And now it's Gideon's turn to take the wheel. And as we see, the angel of the Lord, which is Christ before he became Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, appears to him, it says, by an oak tree, probably somewhere in the Jezreel Valley. And Gideon, in this case, is seen at a wine press threshing. Now, this is an indication of how meek this guy is, how how worried he is. Because normally you thresh on a high place. You go to some high hill, maybe one that had a stone outcropping, so you have a hard surface. And that's where they would take the, the grain. They'd beat it out there. And, of course, that's how threshing works. You have a stalk. You tread it. The beating of the stalk separates the seed, the fruit of the grain, from the rest of the useless chaff. And you did it on a high place because that's where the breezes were. And they would catch the chaff and they would blow it away and leave behind the seed. And so threshing was typically done on a high place. What's the problem with a high place? Well, you can see it from a long way away. Hey, that guy's threshing. Guess where we're going next, right? Well, when you do wine presses, though, you typically are in valleys where you find the the grapes grown and in a low place so that as you tread on the grapes, you don't have the problem of wine running off a high hill. So they would typically put presses in low places, below sight even. And so Gideon has gone to one of these low places to do the threshing, which would have made his job a lot harder, to say the least. But it's an indication, an indication of how scared he is and of just how bad things are. And the angel of the Lord appears to him. And you're going to see by the way the conversation plays out that he doesn't appear as a burning bush or anything of that sort. From Gideon's point of view, it's just a man, a guy, probably a young man. And as this young man appears, the angel of the Lord, of course, his first words to Gideon are valiant warrior. Valiant warrior, which is a salutation designed to cause us to chuckle because it's literally the opposite of what you're looking at. It's the last thing anybody would have thought to address Gideon by. But it's not entirely meant as sarcasm. The Lord's addressing Gideon here, looking ahead of who he's going to become under the Lord's leadership. It's it's what God is going to make of him that he's saying these words. And the fact that he doesn't look anything like it is simply evidence of what we've studied already in here, which is God will take the least and the weak So that he can use them to accomplish things, which at the end of it all, leave us no room to credit anyone except God. Because how could we have seen Gideon do this on his own? Clearly, he wouldn't. So the Lord makes this appearance. Look at Gideon's response. This is why I say I don't think he appeared in any kind of magical, supernatural way. Because Gideon doesn't respond in awe or in terror. In fact, he responds with argument. That he brings an accusation here against the Lord, not knowing that he's talking to the Lord. Gideon says, if the Lord is with us, which he means by us, he means Israel. If the Lord is with Israel, then where is he now? You just said he's with us, but I don't see him. He says, this is the God that our fathers told us all about. We've been told he did great things in the past. Did you notice that? It's an indication that all that this generation of Israel has concerning their awareness of God's power, of his works amongst Israel, all they have are the stories 
Oh, yeah, at some point in the past, he, he parted the Red Sea. Really? Did he do that? And the plagues. Oh, yeah, we heard those stories, but are you sure that ever happened? All I know is I look around now and he can't even defeat a bunch of raiders on camels. It's as if they're saying God abandoned them, right? How many believers have asked this very same question under different circumstances, right? When, when you get into situations that are bad enough, you ask, how can God still be on my side? Or even worse, how can he still be at all? Because obviously, if he was, I wouldn't have all these bad things to deal with. Do you know the problem with that logic? The logic assumes that God's purpose in being on our side is to make everything in our life hunky-dory, according to what we expect now. In other words, the standard we apply for whether or not God exists or whether or not he's good is whether I'm happy. Well, that's a terrible standard. Think about it if your kids applied that standard. Do your parents exist? Well, I'm not happy, so they must not. Or, do your parents love you? Well, they put me in my room today and they took away my toy and they won't let me play Xbox. So, no, they don't love me. That's the kind of answer you would expect from a five-year-old. But it's not true, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't agree with that rationally. You would understand the thinking, but you wouldn't agree with it because it's a mindset that reflects such a narrow appreciation of what love looks like that it's not in a position to judge. That's the problem. You're not in a position to judge. And in this case, the assumption is just flat out wrong. Gideon just happens to be the spokesperson for the culture. But what he's saying was certainly not his thought alone. This is what Israel's thinking. But here's the answer, friends. God didn't forsake Israel. Israel is the one that is forsaking God. And when you do that, when you have a relationship with the living God, and then you don't live up to your side of that relationship, well, and be careful here, I'm not suggesting you're living up to working your salvation or working your way into the relationship. I'm saying the relationship exists. I'm saying by faith, you are now in Christ. All right, friends, if you didn't know already, with that comes some expectations. Expectations that come for the believer, not to become a believer. But as a believer, as one in covenant with the living God, he holds us to a standard of accountability. One that if we aren't willing to accept, he nevertheless presses forward anyway. There's no option to say otherwise. God didn't leave Israel's side as they suppose he did. He's been there every day. God doesn't leave our side when we're having a bad day. He's never gone away. The question you should be asking yourself is not where is God, but why did God let this happen? If you ask that question with a sincere heart, with a desire to know the truth, I assure you, you will come to answers that are profound, that will eventually cause you to think differently about who you are and what you do. And in doing so, you'll be like the Israel who returns to the state of obedience where God then can be just in blessing that obedient child. Think of it as a parent again. If you reward the child in the midst of the bad behavior, you know what you're going to get more of. As the saying goes, you get more of what you reward, which is why you wouldn't do that as a good parent. But when the child is obedient, when the child works to please you, don't you delight to give them good gifts? To encourage that behavior. Our father thinks in wiser ways than we do. So we can't reduce his thought to simply what we do. I get that. But that's not a bad way to conceive of how our father works with us, even as we work with our kids. So instead of asking where God is, they should have been asking, why did he allow it? And then God explains in verse 14. The Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, oh, Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. 
So the Lord answers Gideon, and what he tells him to do is go in this strength, and that just means to go in the strength of the Lord's presence, the strength you now have by virtue of my being here. And it's at this point that I must suppose that Gideon understood he was talking to someone more than just a man. It's probably in this moment that he comes to that understanding. And then from this point on, those of you who've studied Exodus should immediately be noticing something here. This conversation progresses very much like the way Moses has progressed with God at the point when the Lord appeared to him on the mountain. It's almost exactly the same. I mean, the words aren't, but the whole concept of what happens is. And what's really ironic about that comparison is where was Moses when the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush? Midian. Who is Gideon now being asked to defeat? The Midianites, the very same people that Moses came from, at least from where he was living. So anyway, when when you go back to that story in Exodus, Moses was commissioned in Exodus 3 to free Israel from a powerful adversary, just as Gideon is here. But when Moses first gets that commission, what does he say? Do you remember? He comes up with three excuses for why it can't be him. And the Lord addressed each one in turn. But the first one Moses gave is exactly the same one that, that Gideon throws out right now, which basically boils down to you've got to send someone else because I'm sure you've got better choices than me. Moses' explanation was because I'm not very good with my mouth. God had an answer for that. But with Gideon... His reason is, and he does this by virtue of diminishing his, his importance, diminishing his abilities. He says, I'm coming from the least family and the least tribe, and I have just nothing to offer you. Why would you want me? God responds exactly the way he responded to Moses. I wouldn't have it any other way. And what he literally says is, I am enough for you. That's what he says to Moses, too. I will be your mouth. That you don't need more than God. Isn't that self-evident? In fact, he says, you're going to be so empowered to win over these battles against this powerful enemy that it's going to be as if you did it by yourself. One man will be said to have defeated the Midianites. Remember this comment later when we look at what God actually does when he equips Gideon for some of these battles. When we come back into this later and we watch what God does in telling Gideon who to select and how many to keep and so on. Remember, the whole goal is so that the people say, well, basically Gideon did that by himself, which is a way of crediting God. So at this point in the story, Gideon's not done with his worries. He's certainly going to protest some more. In fact, what he'll do next week as we study this more is he's going to have to double check that he's hearing what God is saying. But when God's people generally live in disobedience long enough, when you fail to turn back soon enough, what can happen and what I believe is part of what's happening here in Israel is that there can be damage that's really hard, if not impossible, to reverse in your relationship with God. That you can become so accustomed to that lifestyle, so hardened to the circumstances, that in other words, living in a cave becomes the norm so that you don't even see anymore the need to go anywhere different. When you get to that point in your walk with the Lord, you haven't gotten there overnight, and I'm not saying the Lord stops trying, but I'm saying that the the odds, if you want to put it in human terms, the odds start to go down that you're ever going to respond to that discipline in the right way. Now, in Israel, we know the culture is fracturing, it's disintegrating, it's weakening. And that's why we see, even as the Lord is working to bring them back in this way, recovery is never assured and it isn't complete. That the cycle gets worse every time. And the best of society now, the best God can find, is a step lower than what was possible in the previous generations. The new norm is weakness and doubt. So, friends, if we endure in our sin long enough, despite the discipline, you're playing with fire. You're at risk of going so far that there's no degree of discipline that can get you back. Or even worse, what the scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 6, 
is that he may just decide to leave us where we put ourselves. To quote the writer of Hebrews, I hope for better things for us, as he says in 6, 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Let's go out with a renewed resolve that as we understand what's happening in Israel, we don't want to see it happen in our own lives. And trust that if the Lord is with you working in discipline and in love to move you forward, then you have all the strength you need. The question is, are you going to leave the cave or are you going to stay there? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the reminders, for the exhortation to to walk in the light of Scripture and to live according to your word. Thank you, Father, for the power that comes in the Spirit that makes it possible to do these things. Father, I ask that you just turn to our hearts and speak to us personally on what we need to do differently and ask us, Father, to make that change. Let us return to pleasing you in those areas where it may not be the case today. And thank you, Father, for the way you've encouraged us in days past. If we have come beyond those moments and we've left the cave, so to speak, then, Father, we just take this moment to praise you for that. Thanking you, Father, for the, for the recovery that you made possible. But just like there's a cycle in in the book of Judges, Father, we know that there's a cycle in our life. There's days we come back into the sins of the past. I pray, Father, that our cycle would be one that's moving upward and not downward. And by the strengthening you do in our hearts, Father, we'll be less likely to step into it again in the future. Make us men and women who please you so we can reach others with our witness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.